Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This Ben Jarofsky Show Benny J bonus interview is brought to you in part by the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers Local 126 in District 8, the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 9, the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 150, and the Chicago Federation of Labor. That's correct. Mr. Jarofsky, take it away. Bonus time on the Ben Jarofsky Show. As I speak, it's Wednesday, February 5th, 2020. Headline in my beloved bright one, Chicago Sun-Times, if you're listening to this podcast 20 years from now, Iowa. Get it, D? Iowa. Not Iowa, but Iowa, as in... WTF. Oh, just like happened. Iowa? Yeah, Iowa. Uh, my beloved bright one with a clever headline. Folks, if you're listening to this in 20 years, realize that the state of Iowa just fell on its face with the Democratic caucus in so many ways. But I'm going to re- refrain from discussing that, even though every impulse in my body oh, is raging. Talk about it. Talk about it. Instead, I'm going to turn my attention to something sort of related. And so I will now at this point ask my distinguished guest to introduce himself. My name is Jim Coogan, trial lawyer and not an Iowa caucus goer. <laughs> or an Iowa Democrat writing the most cockamamie set of rules, convoluted, complicated, needlessly so, Jim Coogan. But I'm going to refrain and hold back and focus. You're doing a bad job so far. I know, I really am. Jim Coogan uh, comes on this show at least once a month. We break down all the uh, goings-on, legally speaking. What? It, how is this possibly legal? Uh, <laughs> yeah, the jail cell uh, bars uh, clanging shut. It's, it's one of our more popular features. We'll probably drop it the, this weekend. All right, Jim Coogan. Uh, today, as I said, is Wednesday, February 5th. Uh, the Senate has voted to acquit uh, Donald John Trump. Spoiler of, alert. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. For those people who've been sleeping for the week and uh, didn't realize. Um, yeah. Uh, the spoiler alert. The Senate voted to acquit. What was the, the final vote? Do you know? Two separate votes. Okay. So there ahead. were 48 votes in favor of convicting Trump on ab- obstruction, or excuse me, abuse of power uh, with 47 Democrats plus Mitt Romney. Wow. The other on the obstruction of Congress only had 47 votes, all Democrats. All right, let's just talk about briefly the distinction uh, between those two charges, obstruction of Congress and uh, what was it, abuse of power, did you say? Yeah, so the fundamental charge here was that Donald Trump abused his office mm-hmm. using the public power of influence and reputational things related to a meeting with a foreign president, uh, Zelensky, the new president of Ukraine as of last April, I believe, uh, and the appropriation of foreign aid, military aid and, and, and cash, those were the two things that he had the power to use in his public office, but he used them for personal gain to get assistance in his 2020 reelection campaign. So that's, that's a paraphrasing of the abuse of power charge. Okay. And uh, abuse, what's the second abuse? That he obstructed Congress. That in the process of the investigations, legal investigations, fully, completely, proper investigations that the House of, uh, the House of Representatives has every right to be involved in, that in response to subpoenas for documents and witnesses, that they basically said, we will not respond at all, instructed witnesses not to respond to subpoenas, and as was borne out in a lot of the evidence, really didn't make explicit assertions of executive privilege. Nor did they sit there and say, well, we've got a million documents. We have to redact 60% of this, but we'll turn over the other 40%. It was just, it was more or less just blanket 
fist in the face, adios, <laughs> we're not responding to any of this, and our people are instructed not to. So it's kind of a complimentary charge in the sense that the prosecutors, the House, the Democrats who are asserting that there should be a removal from office are saying, well, we would have also gotten more evidence of these things, but for the fact that those people and those offices were not allowed to, they were instructed not to comply with subpoenas that were, again, they were lawful subpoenas. The claim that somehow they were not allowed to subpoena things, we can get into that if you want, right. but it's, it's just that I think is not legally well-founded. Well, all right. It, that gets into what's next. Uh, the claim that uh, Congress was, or was overseeing its uh, powers and authority by uh, issuing a subpoena, which mm-hmm. is, Kind of an interesting claim, uh, not borne up by anything I ever recall. Uh, it, all right, so just I'm not dumping on Mitt Romney. I appreciate the fact that Mitt Romney was the only Republican in the Senate who broke ranks uh, and was unafraid of a Donald Trump tweet. But I just want a, a clarification, if you can help me in this. Mm-hmm. Why vote for one and not the other? It seems like both are violations. If you're going to vote for one, why don't you, you know, in for a nickel, in for a dime? I, <laughs> <laughs> Come on. That, I'm sure that specific question would was put to him or will be. Uh, I, I would think that as a member of Congress, you also have an interest in standing up for the rights of your legislative body. Because, I mean, he may be, well, frankly, whoever the next president might be could be of the opposite party. And whether he is in the majority in the Senate or the minority, he may want to be part of some investigation of some sort. So this kind of undermines the future you know, viability of the oversight authority of both the House and the Senate. It's not like it, it's only limited to the House of Representatives because it was this time it was the House that was looking for these things. He's a senator. So you'd think he'd have an interest in standing up for their right to request the proper documents and through the proper channels. Um, but not this time. Well, my guess is, and I'm absolutely, it's just pure guessing, speculation, I admit that right now, not being privy to the inner thoughts of Mitt Romney. He he was trying to uh, have it, kind of have it both ways a little bit. S- take the stand against Trump, but look as though he was really open-minded about it. And he, so I, I let him off on this one, hit him on, listen, but I, I, I shouldn't act like I'm complaining, uh, Jim. You're right. It's, you, it's, know. you know, of all the things, uh, there, are, there are many people who, you know, I printed out a, an article, an opinion written by Ohio Senator Rob Portman, who voted for neither of those things, and and is a very, I think, half-hearted explanation as to why he couldn't, he still still wants to be seen as a man of principle, but couldn't convict the president on either of them. So compared to those kind of senators, at least Romney did say the obvious, which is the president clearly stepped beyond his own authorities, and you can't rig an election in your favor by using the public power. It just doesn't work that way. Rob Portman, a Republican senator from the state of Ohio, correct? That's right. All right. Well, I would say that I haven't even read the essay. Uh, but <laughs> so I'm just saying, again, it's a political decision. You do not. Rob Portman's like, mm, do I want to engage in a high profile fight with this uh, all powerful president who runs my party? Not a good idea. At the same time, I'm in a state where it's. You know, it's kind of a swing state, so I want to make it look as though I take these uh, charges serious. So I'll issue this document with blah, 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 blah. And it's a New York Times op-ed, so you can, I mean, that clearly he's he's trying to get to those readers in Cleveland and Cincinnati who actually would bother to pick up the New York Times and don't think that it's some kind of liberal rag uh, to appeal to their sense of, well, at least he bothered to state his case to us clearly reaching out to suburban swing voters the proverbial suburban swing voter who uh went democrat into 2018 congressional and he is clearly by showing in this essay that he's really taking serious these charges uh reaching out to them to explain why he ultimately completely wimped out and was just as bad as every uh, idiotic uh, trump (laughs) puppet uh but you know i mean the vote has the same effect that even if correct. you say which basically what he said was this is not proper but it's not impeachable yeah so that's and you know i imagine that's where most uh except for the hardest of hardcore senators would say that if they're willing to and i guess he falls in the lamar alexander camp of being willing to at least say 
this is wrong, which is more than some, yeah. but not doing anything about yeah, it. Lamar, which right. Yeah, Which is not, in my opinion, a very principled way to go about it, but that's how they decided. Yeah, go. I've never heard anything like I mean, in other words, uh, a crime was committed, this is wrong, or the, the, take the crime committed part out. This is wrong, I, don't, I cannot condone it, but I'm going to let him get away with it because it would be, what, too divisive? Uh, to for the country, or they're like looking up at the skies, like, "Well, this is wrong. Can someone? Couldn't somebody please do something about this?" Well, it's it, Mr. Portman or, or Mr. Rubio. It turns out you actually could have, could but have. you decided not. Well, to, it was so. interesting, Lamar. We're going to move on, but Lamar Alexander, he was the one who said, "I think it would it would just be pouring oil into the fire that already exists." I think, and it's just funny because just yesterday, uh, Donald Trump went to Congress and gave a speech where they were chanting four more years. I've never seen anything like that in a State of Union speech. So I don't know how it can get any more divisive than it already is. Uh, all right. There's a lot to unpack here. The adjudication of the subpoena issue. Uh, I'll hold that off. Let's uh, take a look at the the arguments uh, that went down over the last uh, week or so. Uh, you haven't been on the show since then. Arguments uh, waged by uh, President Trump's lawyers. We'll start with them and then conclude with Adam Schiff. Let's start with Alan Dershowitz. We have we have yeah. to do that. Yeah, <laughs> Alan Dershowitz, criminal uh, defense lawyer and Harvard University law professor and celebrity attorney, was on the O.J. Simpson. People forget that the Dream Team and. Now he's on a new dream team with Ken Starr. Your I, thoughts? I, to, I would, to pull a Ben Jarowski, I would have started with TV celebrity lawyer and then gone through. Thank the you. Okay. I would put the resume in that order, yeah, at least for it. this week. Uh, all right. Uh, what's your thoughts about Alan Dershowitz, the arguments that he raised uh, during the uh, uh, trial? I think that what he said was extremely unfortunate because when someone like that, for, first of all, you have to start with the premise that Donald Trump is fundamentally an entertainment, a an image, and a TV guy. That's how this whole thing started. That's how he rebuilt his image in the early 2000s. That's how he ended up being president was reality TV. So of the few things that I think he really understands in this world, he television and image is one of them. Now, his, reference, his point of reference is a little dated compared to most people, I think. So he still sees Dershowitz as the pinnacle of television lawyer because of things that happened in the 90s and the early 2000s. So that's one reason why he ended up there. He figured this is the guy who, if he's out there defending me, that will convince the country that what I did was right. Um, the, I think, very unfortunate thing is when someone who has the gravitas of you know, maybe maybe politically there's a lot of people and lawyers who would think, I, I completely disagree with this person, but he certainly has a strong legal mind and he's done things in the legal world that are very impressive. He's, he's come up with ways of using evidence and using defense arguments to, to acquit people uh, where it looked like it was a long shot. Uh, and he certainly knows the law. And being a professor at Harvard Law, that's the preeminent law university at this, in this country. So when the words come out of his mouth, they are they can be cited by others as meaningful, as a meaningful interpretation of the law. So this is the 2020 version of Richard Nixon saying, I'm the president, so it's legal. Mm. Uh, it's As long as the president says it, as long as the president does it, that's what Article 2 says. So that's effectively Dershowitz's spin on that was, if the president... And it started out with some sort of weird qualification, like everybody has the tendency to see, every politician has the tendency to see their own actions and their own reelection as something that's in the public good. Like it's sort of sophistry. Well, yeah, well, sure, that kind of makes sense. Like every politician thinks they, them staying in office is the best thing, otherwise they wouldn't be running, right? Mm -hmm. And so therefore, if it's in the public good... <laughs> therefore, Trump can do it, yeah. and it's okay, and it's not, it's also conveniently not a self-interest thing anymore he's not doing it just for himself he's actually doing this for the good of the united states of america and thus it couldn't possibly be an abuse of power wow which is psychotically dangerous <laughs> yeah. in my that's my opinion on that but i think that is extremely dangerous because effectively that would make it impossible to abuse your power period because you could always argue argue that there's a greater public good for doing whatever you did, no matter how egregious, downright dirty and awful it was. What what would stop Trump's campaign from then going and soliciting a billion dollar contribution to some super PAC from the Chinese government? He'd say, well, I want to be reelected. 
my reelection is in the public good. Therefore, my campaign can take a billion dollar contribution from the Chinese government. And then I'm going to go give a bunch of favors to them in return yeah. as president. What, how is that? What would be the, if you take that to its logical conclusion, how would you be stopped from doing that? There yeah. wouldn't be any legal like uh, restraints. Now, let me ask you this. You've uh, argued many cases in front of many juries and judges, all juries or any judges? Doesn't. The ju- I have argued things in front of judges. Usually it's not the trial itself, but they, okay. make, they make rulings on things, so I'm definitely arguing to them. So uh, I'm asking you this. Have you ever found yourself in, in the position where you're making an argument to the jury that in the back of your mind knows is utterly ridiculous, and you're saying to yourself... <laughs> I know this is ridiculous, but I have an obligation to argue this, fight this case as hard as I can, no matter where I go, because that's what I am. I'm an attorney. That's what attorneys do. So I'm just thinking, it's like, is Dershowitz, while he's saying this utter garbage that's ridiculous that he can't possibly believe in, maybe he does, I don't know, thinking... Well, here goes. Let's see where this takes us. Well, you, you had to wonder what's running through his mind because after everybody called him on it afterwards, he's appalled at, like, how dare you <laughs> question <laughs> me saying what I actually said yeah. as if he didn't say it. Yeah. Um, to go back to how you phrased that in the first place, for the most part, uh, I haven't been f- forced. Well, I haven't seen my own interpretation of being a zealous advocate for my client as putting me in a position to having to say something that I knew I, I've never said something that was, that I knew was factually false. Yeah. Uh, what well, maybe stretching an arguments like, well, this, this expert should be able to say something that maybe it's not really in his bailiwick, but I want it to be come out of his mouth because he's really qualified. And I don't I only have one expert in this case or something, you know, maybe I'd stretch it there because that's just the circumstances of that case uh, because some issue kind of falls outside of him being an orthopedic surgeon or something. And I really want him to talk about something that happened in the ER. Uh, But frankly, these, the other, the thing about those being in that position for my clients is it's never been something where it's going to be precedential. Mm. I mean, we've, and although we have cases where we might argue that a case should survive in the law, like it should not be just, just, you know, dismissed on a motion where it would stretch the law a little bit, where we're arguing that something should actually uh, be a different interpretation of like construction liability or something. Um, but then it's up to the appellate courts to say, no, you're wrong. That case was dismissed at the trial level and we agree and the law doesn't go that far. I mean, the other thing about this is he's he's making this really to the court of public opinion. Yeah. But when you're talking about what the president's powers entail, there is no court other than a Senate court to decide what's really legal. Because, I mean, the partisanship of the Supreme Court comes to mind when you start to wonder, well, what other what other places are there constraints? Um, and other than getting sued, the administration has gotten sued 2,500 times already in the last three years over a variety of things. Is that right? Uh, well, I don't know. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's definitely hundreds of times. Okay, yeah. Environmental issues, yeah. citizenship issues. Uh, the children in cages issues. Um, other than when those things get adjudicated and it's not exactly like Trump's personally using his power, you know, th- this is kind of what's going to go. And what else would Trump follow after he gets acquitted other than he's now going to remember what Dershowitz said as the endorsement. He can do anything he wants. Oh, I'll go one step further. I wouldn't be surprised if Trump suggested to Dershowitz that he make that argument. Uh, it, it, it's not a. He certainly would have said, "I can do anything I want. You put it in legal." Yeah, lines. right. He already said that. He goes, he, "Wasn't Trump the one who said I could shoot someone in the on Fifth Avenue?" And no, it was his lawyer that said that. Well, yeah, he said it yeah. as a candidate. His yeah. lawyer had trouble answering the question when the judge put it right. to him. That's correct. And you know, the other thing is, he he has repeatedly said. I'm going to say this in Trumpese, like I've got an article two that says I can do whatever I want, which sounds, it's not, <laughs> that's not how anything works, but that's how yeah. he believe. That's what he, somebody has some, that they've gotten that into his head, that article two of the constitution, which has broad powers means he can do whatever he wants. Yeah. Uh, and it sounds good. It sounds very scholarly when you refer to article two. Oh, well, it says an article two. All right, let's get to uh, this, a second member of Trump's quote unquote dream team. Uh, 
and you live long enough, you see everything, Jim Coogan. Mm. Ken Starr makes his return to an impeachment uh, fight, only now he's on the other side. Before, he was the prosecutor when he was prosecuting Bill Clinton uh, in 1998, I want to say. And now he's on the defense side when he's defending Donald John Trump in 2020. Stick around, like I said, you'll see it all. Thoughts on Ken Starr's performance? Um, I mean, like, woe be unto... America that we live in an age of impeachment of all the people to decry impeachment being abused as a as the tool of Congress to mess with the White House. I I I asked you before we started taping this. I don't know how you're how anybody can interpret this other than just trolling the country. How do you put that person out there as the voice? Because you know they had eight or nine different people working on the defense side for the, mm. for Trump. So they had specific roles. And one of the f- very narrow things that he was doing out there was pointing out how tragic it is that a, a impeachment is being overused and that the Congress overreached here by bringing these charges against the president. Um, so that was a little bit off-putting, uh, having him quote Martin Luther King and, and talking about how this, this is, this is an injustice and, uh, Trump shouldn't be subject to like the abuses of a of a of a court. I mean, not to mention the king was a was a, civ- a proponent of civil disobedience. So it's not like the I think he was even talking about the rules that that it was like part of his closing argument. Mm-hmm. He was quoting King and he was starting to talk about how the the, the rules have to apply to everyone. Yeah. Like he was shaming the house managers because they did too much here. But I mean, I, I think I just assume that if Martin Luther King Jr. were were alive. Right now, he might see this a little differently than speaking up on behalf of poor Donald Trump and him being a victim of the justice system here or something like that. But yeah, I mean, it was really, this is a guy who was extraordinarily desperate and partisan in his his drive to find something to charge Bill Clinton with. Mm -hmm. Travelgate, Whitewater. Uh, maybe Clinton somehow murdered uh, Vernon. Uh, what was his name? The the lawyer, the White House lawyer. Not Vernon. Uh, um, I just blanked in the name. It popped out. It'll come back to me. Yeah, but you know what I'm talking. Yeah, yeah. I mean, now we're like talking about all yeah. sorts of criminal things. And finally, they get a deposition where he says something false. Yeah. I, I mean that. I think his investigation went on for six years. Yeah. Before they finally impeached him. Yeah. No. Uh, or no, I'm sorry. It started in '95, so three and a half years or something like that. But. Um, worry about it later. Yeah. Ultimately, it, it it was, I guess, an example of more optics that the Trump team decided to have television lawyers. I mean, this is a guy who's also got thrown out of Baylor for looking the other way during a horrible sex scandal mm-hmm. and doing a terrible job mismanaging everything. So not really the voice of like institutional controls, in my opinion. Um, and yet they needed him there to somehow give some sort of gravitas to say, well, this is a, this is a voice for, I'm not even sure because in the past he was, he was more or less the prosecutor in that case. So it's just, it's confusing. I don't know what they're going for. Can you think of any, any lawyer, any distinguished lawyer, law professor, uh, who lent a legitimate justification for the acts of the president, which include, again, uh, resisting congressional subpoena, uh, intimidating witnesses with tweets. I'm just rattling this off at the top of my head. Ordering uh, his aides not to appear uh, before um, Congress. Uh, denigrating the prosecutors, mocking (laughs) the law. All these things that Donald Trump did on a consistent basis throughout can you think of any law professor, any legal mind, other than like a Dershowitz or Ken Starr, celebrity lawyers who are in it for the celebrity, who could lend like credence to the behavior of Donald Trump? I didn't know you were going to put me on the spot with that. I, 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 I don't know that, I don't really believe that Trump has ever gotten any lawyer to advocate on his behalf other than lawyers who were hired by him. So not scholarly folks, folks that were willing to take whatever he was giving them, whether it was money or fame for their own personal gain mm-hmm. to actually go out on the limb of, of jeopardizing their professional reputations and, you know, maybe even their legal licenses to say whatever he had 
because we're remember he's got his some of his lawyers are in jail mm-hmm. <laughs> i mean it's 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 uh it's not a like it's not a list if you look at all the people who've represented him of people who have distinguished themselves by doing so and jonathan turley was the yeah, there you go. was the republican counterpoint in the house when there was i guess professional uh, that they had testimony from law professors yeah. talking about the nature of the constitution, the nature of impeachment, the historical precedent, and what, what's a, what the legal meaning is of these things um, at best. And Turley actually was, it was one of the things that Rob Portman cited because of course that's why he testified in the house was to give cover to senators down the road to say, well, you know, at least we have this one legal scholar that said this thing, but he wasn't, he didn't say that Trump was right on the merits. And he didn't endorse any of the things that you just yeah. mentioned, like witness intimidation. He just said that it was a very thin premise and it was rushed, which the reason. Why, <laughs> so it gets back to the whole problem with the. And I, I honestly, I know that I'm sh- people could accuse me of being biased here, but I was very impressed with a lot of things that the House did here. But putting these two things in complement with one another, saying that he abused his power, but he also abused the, the second part of abusing his power was abusing the process and not complying with witness subpoenas mm-hmm. was really well done because fundamentally the house, there was nothing left for them to do. They weren't rushing. They had a bunch of depositions. There were very, I think heroic people who were willing to testify in closed session. And then in open session, we had hearings for a couple of months there. It, it went on for weeks at a time and there'd be a break. Um, after those witnesses were exhausted, Everything else was just stonewalled. Yeah. There wasn't, I don't know what Turley thought that they should do. And then you hear that you've heard the echo of that in the, in, from the Trump team that, well, you know, they should have gone to court and, and fought over this. And meanwhile, I think there was something like last week where in court, the, the argument from Trump people about whether or not something should be produced was, well, really, that's an, that's an issue for impeachment. Yeah. Like if they really want to fight us, that's a, it's a political question, judge. So basically they're admitting to the catch 22. Adam Schiff pointed that out uh, at one point. Uh, We'll get into Adam Schiff's role, uh, the uh, Democratic Congress. You can't get us here. But also you can't get us here yeah. because, and the reason you can't get us here is because you can't get, you're supposed to right. get us there, but exactly. you're also not allowed to get us there. Yeah. Just so we're clear. Yeah. Just so we're clear. Go there to get us. But when, once you're there, we're going to tell you, go back to where you came from. Uh, yeah. So it's just keep you, the Democrats going in a circle. Uh, all right. And uh, so that's Ken Starr. Let's talk about, you want to talk about the White House lawyers. These are paid employees of the taxpayers. These are taxpayer paid employees. Am I correct? Yeah. White House counsels, counselors. Well, and you know, it's so the the concern that I have over the role that the White House Counsel's Office had in this defense is it's not just that they are government employees, they're not Trump's private lawyers, they're not Jay Sekulow, they're not Ken Starr, they're not Dershowitz coming on there either for free or for whatever, for fame uh, or for money. They are, they're not just government lawyers, but they're also, it's a very powerful office. They write legal opinions that are more or less binding Mm -hmm. on administrative actions and things that the president's office engages in. I mean, they can be sued and then maybe that case goes in front of the courts and and, uh, the the White House counsel defends the administration because of how they interpreted like an environmental ruling or something like that. But they've got a lot of power Mm -hmm. and here they are acting in an extremely partisan fashion. The things that they were saying, the claims that they made, the way that they went about defending him, wasn't really befitting of the office in sort of like a neutral way of we're defending the White House mm-hmm. and the office of the presidency. They're basically, you know, defending the man personally. Yeah. And and the conflation of the office of the presidency with Donald Trump has been one of the fundamental problems with his entire presidency. He doesn't care about those boundaries. Uh, whether you like Barack Obama or George Bush or, or Clinton before him, I mean, they at least respected there was some distinction between themselves personally and the office. They had issues with it. They all do. They're who who but a who but a person with a huge ego would end up being president in the first place, right? Yeah, but, it's a requirement. But you have to have something at least to respect the distinction. And Trump doesn't respect distinctions writ large, and especially not that one. So now they've kind of like co-opted the White House Counsel's Office, and it's I think that has done some serious damage to the reputation of that office to be impartial and to interpret the law in a way that's looking at the country's interests and not just an individual man in the White House. Well, I, I told you about this before uh, we went on the air. 
I urge uh, you and everybody else to read uh, Jack Goldsmith's book. He's a Harvard Law professor uh, in the shadow of Hoffa. And uh, it, it talks, Jack Goldsmith is a, uh, was a lawyer in the Bush, uh, George Bush White House. And he, he was the one in charge of trying to build a case, a constitutional case, for the uh, overwhelming uh, surveillance that uh, the Bush White House was engaging in after 9-11. And he was wrestling with these issues of, you know, uh, being a servant to the Constitution, uh, and being an employee of a particular president. So this is a tension that exists in it's just part of the job, I think, of uh, being a White House counsel. But and, and to remind us of just how powerful it is, remember, one of the things that was consistently cited during the Mueller days, the Mueller investigation, was the restraint that was put on his job because of the Office of Legal Counsel's opinion, which is part of the White House counsel's office, mm-hmm. the OLC opinion that said, here's the boundaries for what you're allowed to do and you can't charge a president with a, with a crime and so on. So there's an ex- like, that's an extremely powerful office. Jim, I say this all the time. I'll repeat it again before we move on. Uh, I don't want to drag you into my political world, but Republicans play the game to win. Democrats, they just kind of <laughs> run around to lose weight. I don't know what they're doing. And, uh, you know, Republican lawyer, it's all about winning. And it's just, I've been watching this my entire life in politics, uh, watching Republicans play to win. They play hardball. Uh, they feel no compunction to go bipartisan. Last night at the uh, State of the Union speech, as I said, they were chanting four more years, four more <laughs> They might as well just give the, the finger to all the Democrats who are out there. So... Uh, these White House lawyers are part and parcel of that. You know, to that end, I, I, I actually had an idea to throw at you today. This is more of a political idea than a legal idea. Uh-huh. I, I, I was thinking, and I don't know if somebody's already said this, but one thing that I really think has to happen for the next, what do we have, eight months till the election, 10 months till the election? Uh-huh. The, the House of Representatives is still run by Democrats until the next election. I can't imagine why there's any good reason that they should sign off on any spending appropriations. I don't care if it's for the military. I don't care what it's for. Like you want to like talking about playing to win, play hardball a little bit, because the central premise of this was Donald Trump was given money and he used it for his own personal gain. So, and this goes back to God, I wish they hadn't signed off on the the defense spending bill Mm -hmm. for what they did, because that's obviously something he'll trumpet as a win. But I mean, if they're going to, they have to learn to play for keeps. I know they're not going to do it. And, and we're, oh, what's your, uh, the professor that comes on the show? Who, David Ferris. David Ferris. Yeah. Who's, who's always informing this investigation yeah. or this discussion as well. But I mean, that, it popped into my head the other day that this was a, this was about misappropriate. And he also did it with the wall. You know, he took like a billion dollars <laughs> of defense money and he decided to spend it on his wall. That's that presently down. falling down. <laughs> um, I, I mean, if they're, if they're, I, I, that's the kind of thing where they can seize on it and say, look, do you, does America think we should spend this money? Yeah. We actually want to, but we can't trust him to do it right. I, I would I would say, now we're, we're, we've left law into politics. We'll go back to law. But I would say that uh, 45% of the country would be giving them a standing ovation if they did that. And so the election would still come down to that swing vote. Or, and maybe you can increase the number of people turn out to vote if they take a bold stand. I believe that most Democrats have given up on the illusion of bipartisanship. I know there, like I have, I have democratic strategists who come in here and swear up and down, uh, Jim, that no bipartisanship is still a winning issue in some sub- suburban swing districts. And I'm like, man, what are you drinking? And can I have some of it? Cause <laughs> there hasn't been bipartisanship, uh, in ages. So, uh, you may be onto something, although, uh, he's not recommending it folks as a lawyer. He's just throwing that it's out. It's not there. a legal. Opinion. It's a, not a legal. It's a political opinion. Sure. All right. Uh, so let's get into uh, the well, let's do a little Monday morning quarterbacking. Uh, in retrospect, we all know that uh, it was going to be an acquittal all along. We all know that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we all know that by uh, keeping, uh, as they did, by, by Mitch McConnell and the Republicans in the Senate keeping John Bolton and others from testifying or, uh, and keeping uh, depositions uh, being taken of key players or w- documents to be introduced, et cetera, and so forth, they effectively uh, had no substantial proof 
you know, that they had to confront when they voted their acquittal. In other words, they could just acquit without reason. Hey, we don't want to acquit. So having said all that, Monday morning quarterbacking, do you think the Democrats should have taken the deal that the Republicans sort of put on the table, which said, we, the Republicans, will allow John Bolton to testify if you, the Democrats, agree to have Hunter Biden and Joe Biden testify? Um. We don't know that they, they never actually re, like officially proposed it, right? It was more or less like rhetoric. Pat, it was taught. Senator yeah. Pat Toomey of Pennsylvania maybe said something to some reporters about that, right? They kind of, yeah, you're right, dangled it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, I think that one problem is I don't believe that how, uh, Senate Majority Leader McConnell. Mitch McConnell from Kentucky would have ever allowed it. I think that the fix was in on that. Okay. But. If you're talking about blue sky, my strategy as a trial lawyer, what, what would I have done as a member of the house management team or what my opinion would have been? Um, I would, given the fact that you're up against such an obstinate jury mm-hmm. in that case, where you've got 53 votes against you before you even start mm-hmm. and almost impossibility that you're going to sway any of them, you got to go for broke. So if it means, you know, hey, listen, I don't really think that Hunter Biden's testimony is in any way relevant, and it may not really be fair to him in some sense to to have to sit here and answer questions or be dragged through the press for another week or whatever surrounding his testimony, um, if it meant that you actually would get more meaningful information, you have to try to do it. So my answer would, yeah, I mean, they, they... if that was really a like genuine opportunity that they could have had, yeah. I would have tried it. I certainly would have tried to get Bolton. I mean, so, even some of the smaller, uh, the names that I can't remember off the top of my head, but there was a somebody who signed off on an email who was actually instructing the withholding of the funds around around a key date in, in August or September of 2019. That, that was one of the guys who was consistently cited as like these four big witnesses, in addition to Mulvaney and Bolton, that they wanted to have testify. I mean, I would have gone as deep into that as you can. If it's one for one, two for two, three for three, <laughs> I, you know, and, and not only that, but it would have dragged this out longer, which if you're a House manager, if you're a Democrat, you shouldn't have any problem with this going on all the way up until the election day yeah. or all the way until January 19th of 2021 before the next president's sworn in. It wouldn't, why would that make any difference to you? Yeah, no, that uh, you're in David Ferris country, uh, country right there with that one. Uh, I, I think they should have done it. And I, I also agree with you that the Republicans would not have accepted it. So <laughs> they could have said, Hey, they had the best of both worlds. They said, yeah, we're open to it. And then they wouldn't have had to do it anyway. All right. Uh, since we're talking about democratic uh, strategy and democratic uh, behavior and all this. Your thoughts on Adam Schiff's role, who is the chief prosecutor, if you will, of the congressman from Southern California. I repeatedly said to people while I got to watch pieces of his um, opening statements, his responding to questions, and and then I think Monday was when he gave his closing argument. I consistently was saying to people, this guy had to have been a hell of a prosecutor as a trial lawyer when he did that job before he became a member of the house of representatives, uh, because he's got a very impressive manner of go- We saw some of it. There was a lot of previews because his status kept getting more and more elevated as these things became more serious as running the intelligence committee in the house and hearings that were televised. And so Americans were introduced to him more and more. Um, but he's got a great manner of walking through important information saying it in a way that is digestible and understandable and arguing in a way that is at least other than being a witness or a a jury member who's already sold their vote out and has closed their ears. I, you know, an actual impartial jury who is interested in doing impartial justice here would have been very persuaded by the way he put this together. And I don't, you know, they obviously had substantial input from the rest of the house and Jerry Nadler, but I'm sure he was very much the quarterback of putting this together, and I was very impressed. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the, there was a level of sincerity yeah. about the actual tenets of our Constitution and our Republic that you just can't muster on the other side because you're in defense of the indefensible. So at the same time, that, that doesn't mean everybody's going to do it right, mm-hmm. and I think you really did. 
Did you think uh, that criticism of the Republic? I know the answer to this question before I ask it. Did the, <laughs> did the criticism, remember the, the, the outrage that the Republicans had, uh, outraging quotes, when he made a reference to re, uh, heads on pike, I think that was the reference. Remember that? Or, he was referring to whether or not Republicans were afraid of being you know, outed by Trump and yes. screamed at and had their heads put on a pike. Yeah. Uh, was it the violent imagery that offended I, I, them or they something? Were just so out. Who knows? Is this it like was a Tipper Gore thing yeah. or something? I, I'm like, I don't. They're clutching their pearls yeah. over the, you know, when 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 Donald Trump describes some of the most disgusting things that he does constantly in tweets and puts in writing. Um, I don't know. I think it's. I think that's a great rhetorical flourish because ultimately that is what it's about. Yeah. That's what this is really about. Between money that they would either have directed towards them or away from them through the the uh, Republican Senate fund or whatever the, the majority fund is that McConnell has control over, all the super PACs that Trump has influence over, and him and his screaming and his tweeting. Um, I don't, I mean, other than just dyed in the wool believing in re the Republican conservatism, I can't imagine any other reason that they would have done this anyway, because at the end of the day, you could have removed Trump from office and you still would have had like the, the, that whole preposterous talking point of undoing the 2016 election. Mike Pence would have been the president. Yeah. That doesn't undo any election. That's just it's ridiculous. Yeah. And, and that guy, Mike Pence, is your classic, you know, perfect milk toast Republican. Like he's like a he's like a an extra to a show about Republican White House, right? He's just like a guy there who's, who looks exactly the part, who would sign any bill they gave him. Um, so that you're not really risking anything other than, you know, I guess being afraid of Donald Trump and yeah. his wrath. By the way, and as an indication of how far the Republican Party has come under the uh, control of Donald Trump, I'll tell you something I've been talking about a lot in the show uh, for reasons that I'm not quite, a uh, proud of uh, a sign of my uh, insanity. I watched about a week ago. I rewatched the 2016 Republican debate on CNN. I really wanted to see how CNN approached the Republican debate to contrast it with how they reproached the Democratic. So I went back. I actually spent uh, t hours of my life, Jim Coogan, that I will never retrieve. Do they call that self-flagellation <laughs> yeah. or something? I don't. That's. <laughs> it was. I, I, get, I give you credit for making the investment. <laughs> well, you know, in some levels it was entertaining, but I was watching Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz pound the hell out of Donald Trump on all the issues, mainly Rubio, mm. mainly I, it's little Marco, little Marco, remarkable to see uh, the things that uh, he was saying, to hear the things he was saying and watch his behavior as he went after Trump, sounding every bit like a Democrat now. Yeah, calling and, him a con man and all those con things. Con man right? and talking about how his products that uh, he boasts about are made in China, uh, talking about the conflict of interest uh, with his uh, hotels and if he was president, talk about how he hired illegal uh, 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 aliens, I think that's the word he used, uh, people who were in this country illegally to work in his businesses and now he's talking about a wall ripped him every which way you could and now he is a puppet a total puppet uh in uh to uh donald trump that's why I, once in one more time give Mitt romney credit at least yeah i mean and what else right what else could explain going from having all those very legitimate criticisms of the man including very accurately predicting the way he would op operate in the white house by using you know using the office for his personal gain. I mean, if he's talking about conflicts of interest, ironically, like that's, this abuse of power was just a manifestation of yeah. the same kind of conflicts that Trump walked into the White House. Well, I think obviously it shows, again, this is more political and legal, that uh, any Republican who has political ambitions, presidential ambitions, as Marco Rubio obviously does, he ran already ran once, realizes that whenever this nightmare is over, uh, he will have to appeal to the Trump voters in the, in the Republican Party, so he cannot afford, for the sake of his political future, to um, to lose them. Apparently not. Yeah, that's so the calculation. That's the made. calculation uh, they're making. And what? Hey, chip. Let the chips fall where they may in terms of American democracy. Mm -hmm. All right, what's next? Um, 
Donald Trump was acquitted this round. Uh, Monroe Anderson was on the show earlier today, uh, our Trump expert, saying uh, the Democrats, can, if they want to, can start the prosecution, the investigation up again and uh, impeach him again if they want. I love the sunny optimism of this round. <laughs> That's... Let's go for it again. Uh, uh, so what do you think is next? Well, the, to, in today's headlines about what's happening around the impeachment mm-hmm. in light of the fact that the vote was set for today and that, you know, the results were set in stone. Uh, there was a reporter talked to Jer- Jeremy, Jerry, Jerome, I'm confusing the two Nadler of house of representatives member from New York Democrat uh, about what they're going to do. And apparently there was an intimation that they might make the move to subpoena witnesses again, including John Bolton. Uh, I mean, and that, you know, obviously one way you can look at that is they didn't have all of this information when they were doing this before the, the manuscript of his book wasn't out. And there was also some information that came out in that freedom of information act request that was granted to the group that was trying to get some of these documents, private group, not the house of representatives. So not blowing off congressional subpoenas, a judge actually forced them to, the white house to turn some things over that added more ammunition to the idea that they absolutely were doing what everybody already knows that they absolutely were doing. Uh, the only way to say it didn't happen is just pretending like it didn't happen. So um, they certainly have the power to continue to investigate some of these things. And, it, you know, as a political matter, I can't imagine why they wouldn't. I don't, I don't, I mean, other than you can certainly turn your attention to legislation if you want to. But there's no reason you can't do both. If you and if you know, let's say the political calculation is, well, we can't continue to investigate Trump, or continue to look at witnesses that would we be soliciting information about Trump, because he might not sign a bill. I don't. I mean, is that even really a relevant argument at this point? No. He he and and he's he's signed. He got them to go along with the USMCA, which is I, I, apparently I don't know if you knew this, but it's the greatest trade agreement in the history of the world. It's not even just the United States. I think it's basically just repackaged NAFTA, but I'm not a, I'm not a trade expert. Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, why not just do both? Then you're only talking about the next seven to, to nine months yeah. anyway. Well, I'm, I don't even know if it has to end in an impeachment. Uh, you could just have endless investigations, uh, which we'll just call them the Benghazi hearings or yes. something. <laughs> yeah. The Benghazi I mean, had a nice ring to it. I don't, I don't think the original ones had anything to do with Benghazi either. So whether or not the, the, the irrelevance of the name is not a, it's not a sticking point. Well, I actually think this, this, these events, uh, have a life of their own. So for instance, the issue of whether, uh, the white house is, uh, can, has the authority to uh, compel uh, aides to the president not to testify. I believe that's a serious legal issue that should be adjudicated and a judge should render a decision on it so we know, right? I I think that's legitimate. Uh, Can Donald Trump uh, say to resist an attempt to subpoena public documents? Mm -hmm. You, these are, no, I'm not going to give them to you. Don't you think that should be adjudicated? I mean, so do, I think these will have a legal life of their own. Well, and because here's the thing. Why would, or if that's not adjudicated, there's nothing to stop the president from prohibiting all sorts of documents from being disclosed. They're not. Why would they limit it just to things that implicate him in a crime? Mm-hmm. I mean, for all the things that he's done to the environment since he got into office, they can they would continue to be even bolder in their yeah. stonewalling of in, information coming from or, or going to the EPA if they could. Yeah. I mean, he's certainly very, very heavily influenced by oil and extraction industry interests. Um, how Maybe it would affect how he deals with the FDA. Maybe it would affect how they deal with military issues. I mean, there, there's already a pretty protective wall around those things anyway, because of security clearances and what information is top secret and part of in the national security interest. But what, unless a judge forces them to do it, they're going to, they're just going to keep, it's going to be like a cancer metastasizing into every other aspect of FOIA law and the ability of the public to know what the hell their government is actually Mm -hmm. doing. So Yes. I mean, on the investigate, the congressional investigation front, they can continue to investigate things. 
try to bring in witnesses, whether they actually come up with more articles of impeachment and probably make Monroe Anderson's day <laughs> is, is an option. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't stop uh, the House and public interest groups from prosecuting those cases in the courts as well. We got to this issue on either the last show or the one before that. What would happen? Would we get to a point where that issue of can the president prohibit witnesses and documents without any legitimate executive privilege being asserted from being turned over? Would institutionalist John Roberts, because he's the only possible vote at the Supreme Court, realize that you would be destroying the the distinction between and the checks and balances between the Congress and the president if you allowed him to do that. Yeah, um, we didn't really have an answer, and I don't know if I have one today either. Unfortunately, I, listening to you talk and thinking about it, uh, we'll leave with this. It makes me appreciate very much the fact that the Democrats took back the House uh, in 2018. And it just lends credence how important it is to hold the house. There would be nothing resembling a check on Donald Trump. Nothing at all. No. Without. And in retrospect, I look back to those first two years, the chaos of the Trump administration. I mean, he did get. He's been appointing judges like crazy. That 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 part has gone on unabated. Yeah. And that doesn't affect the house. Uh, he got the um, uh, his tax law through, so gave a huge amounts of wealth, transferred more uh, money to the wealth wealthy than they already had. Uh, so yeah, he those are his two, and he's got it through federal uh, through his presidential orders, executive orders, environmental law. So he's been able to do so right. much damage already. Um, but yeah, well, thank goodness he didn't do more in the first two years. Yeah. I, I look back at him, I'm kind of, I mean. There's a lot of future left in front of us that he could do damage in, but thank goodness. Uh, yes, indeed. Thank goodness. Uh, Jim Coogan is my guest. We're going to take, we're going to end it right here, but I will tell you this. I want to give you one more recommendation. I already recommended a book to you. Have you seen the movie marriage story yet? Uh, no. Okay. You know what? I think my wife already watched it and said she thought it was pretty good. All right. I'm not really a big fan of marriage story, but I would love for you to to get your opinion of the lawyers in marriage story and their performance and behavior. Two excellent actors, uh, Laura Dern and Ray Liotta play, uh, rival lawyers, uh, who divorce lawyers. I did see one clip of that. Were there Where, in court? Did you see n- the court scene? Okay, no, it was in his office. It was. I think Ray Liotta was saying something about how to negotiate. Yeah. If you if you start at here and they're at crazy, then you're all the way over there by the time you finish up. With so I, love, I, I'm not a fan <laughs> of the movie as a whole. Uh, so this will not be a movie review or anything, but my favorite by far part of the movie is the portion where the lawyers are battling. <laughs> I would love to get your, so that's your assignment. Uh, <laughs> even if you just fast forward to the whole movie and get to that part. And then your other assignment is definitely read Jack Goldsmith's, uh, in the shadow of Hoffa. Many assignments like you poor Jim Coogan on the Ben, on the Ben Jarofsky show. Uh, Jim, thank you so much for coming in. I really appreciate it. Another segment of, is this legal or how is this legal? Uh, with the great Jim Coogan, uh, I'm Ben Jarofsky, and that's another bonus show on The Ben Jarofsky Show.